those possibilities and scenarios and just sort of takes them out of the pages of Scripture and puts them in modern um, conceptions of ways that we might be able to conceptualize the fulfillment of some of these prophecies we're going to read about and study tonight. So uh, let's roll the first uh, clip. Okay. Now why don't we pray as he gets the lights back on. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these things, Lord, that were prophesied by your servant, John. Things that he saw that were revealed to him and that he recorded for us in the Revelation. And Lord, as we study these things tonight, these these visions of the future, Lord, and as we try to understand how they might be fulfilled in these last days, Lord, we pray you give us insight and we pray, Lord, that we would all leave tonight with both a sweet taste in our mouth, because all this means that you're coming back soon. But also, Lord, help us to leave with a bitter taste in our stomachs, because we know there are people that are going to be left behind. Help us to leave with the encouragement, with the passion, with the desire to share the good news of Jesus far and wide. Speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine yourself at a heavyweight boxing match. Loudspeakers blare through the PA system. The challenger steps into the ring. Then the champ climbs into the ring. The crowd gets worked up into a frenzy. And then the deep-throated announcer, he screams out so everybody can hear, Let's get ready to rumble. This is the mood when we get to Revelation chapter 6. Chapter 5 introduces God's champ. And he happens to be a little lamb. But this little lamb roars like a lion. He packs a powerful punch. He carries an awfully big wallop. The hammer of God's judgment is about to fall on planet earth when we get to chapter 6. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus was seen as the one person worthy and able to redeem the title deed to planet earth. He took the scroll and he popped the seven seals. But remember, as we've talked about this morning, purchasing a parcel of property and then taking possession of that property are two different things, especially if the occupant of a piece of property refuses to leave. And this is the predicament that Jesus faces. After buying back planet Earth on the cross, he now has to evict the old tenants who refuse to leave. And as Jesus pops the seals on the scroll... He releases catastrophic judgments on a stubborn Satan and on a Christ-rejecting humanity. Chapter 6 through 19 describe the rumble that ensues. Jesus tossing out the squatters, carnage and ruin result. The Bible calls this period of history Great Tribulation. And don't think these events are distant happenings. I believe chapters 6 through 19 chronicle the near future. John is providing previews of coming attractions. In verse 2, the first seal breaks and John sees a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. Now don't mistake this writer for Jesus, he's not. Satan makes his counterfeit as close to the original as possible. In chapter 19, we'll see Jesus riding on a white horse. But in the beginning of the tribulation, the equestrian is the Antichrist. 
Notice Satan's strongman here carries a bow, but no arrows. And that's significant. It means he takes over the world without firing a shot. He conquers the world with deception and subterfuge and diplomacy and intimidation. The second seal unleashes a red horse or a horse of war. The Antichrist comes to power through political manipulation, but once in power, he uses, as John says, a great sword. He uses force and violence to enforce his will. The third seal releases a black horse, which brings famine. The fourth seal, a pale horse, which brings disease and death. And through these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these first four seals, a quarter of the world's population perish, John tells us, It's a destruction that is unparalleled in human history. Today, there are a little under six billion people that inhabit the earth. Understand, a death toll of 25% would add up to one and a half billion people. That's five times the population of the United States. The fifth seal reveals the souls of the martyrs crying out for God's vengeance on their persecutors. It's interesting that even in the midst of these judgments, people will come to Christ. But in that day, faith proves costly. Martyrdom awaits the tribulation saints. And the Antichrist orchestrates another holocaust to torture those who become Christians. This is why it's naive to think that you can wait until after the rapture to get saved. Guys, if you can't live for Jesus now, trust me, what makes you think you can die for him then? After these... Martyrs cry out from under the altar, the sixth seal is broken, and cataclysmic upheavals shake the world literally off its foundations. The earth wobbles under the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 12 of chapter 6 speaks of a great earthquake. Verse 13 says, the stars of heaven fell to the earth. And verse 14 tells us, and the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Cataclysms of unprecedented proportion attacked the earth and the earthlings. It's interesting that the word that's translated stars in verse 13 refers really to any celestial body other than our sun and moon. That would include a planet or a comet or an asteroid or meteorite or any kind of cosmic projectile. It's interesting, a quick survey of the Earth's surface and the numerous craters that cover it reveal that meteorites have struck our planet in the past. They certainly have struck the moon. There's craters all over it. And many astronomers believe that meteorites will strike our planet again. In November 23rd, in the November 23rd, 1992 Newsweek cover story edition, Doomsday Science, A man by the name of Daniel Yeomans, he, a NASA scientist, works in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He made this statement. He said, space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. He concludes, sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. On Kitt Peak near Tucson, Arizona, there is an observatory that charts the path of asteroids. And they have found several, actually thousands, that could collide with planet Earth. Astronomers have identified these asteroids, many of them larger than a half mile wide, with orbits that could cross the path of our planet. Each of these cosmic projectiles poses, actually threatens 
our way of life. When the sixth seal is broken, the world, we're told, runs for cover. Verse 15 describes the kings hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and said, Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What a fascinating phrase, though. The wrath of the Lamb. You know, Jesus deals with sin in one of two ways. He either pardons it or he punishes it. And it's really up to us to take our pick. He pardons it or he punishes it. How would you rather him deal with your sin? That's a pretty easy choice, isn't it? There is one thing, though, he won't do, and that's ignore it. The lamb gets angry at sin. And one day he is going to vent his wrath on the rebellious. Revelation 6 through 19 records events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Events in this period of great tribulation. First, the church gets raptured. Next, the Antichrist signs a covenant with the nation Israel. That begins seven years of what we call great tribulation, where the earth is going to be bombarded with God's judgment. At the end of those seven years, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on the earth. Chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation tell us that these judgments will come to this earth in three waves. Three sets of seven judgments each. They come as broken seals, as trumpet blasts, and as poured out bowls. As Jesus breaks the seals and takes possession of what belongs to him, judgment rains down. Trumpets sound a warning that God means business, that sin will be punished. Bowls brimming with God's wrath are thrown down out of heaven upon the earth. And interspersed between these seals and trumpets and bowls are several vignettes or parenthetical passages that focus on personalities or characters or other details relating to the great tribulation. And we come to the first of those vignettes in chapter 7. An unprecedented spiritual awakening will take place during the great tribulation. It's interesting that never before in the history of Christianity has the church grown numerically as it is growing in the world today. Worldwide, 80,000 new believers get added to the church each day. Can you believe that? In Asia and Africa, 1,000 new churches are planted weekly. The church is exploding everywhere in the world, except the United States, tragically. But the largest and most sweeping spiritual awakening is yet to take place. It's still future. And ironically, it won't occur until the church has been airlifted from the earth. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus predicted a final worldwide burst of evangelistic activity prior to his return. This is what will happen in the Great Tribulation. After the rapture, the sudden exodus of millions of Christians, God will send 144,000 Jewish evangelists, two key witnesses, and three angels who will buzz the globe, sounding out the warning of the coming judgments. The result of all this is going to stir up a spiritual awakening unparalleled in human history. Chapter 7 describes how 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel convert to Christianity and become mighty missionaries. 
Imagine 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams turned loose on planet Earth. These Jews for Jesus are sealed by God. They're protected by Him. And as a result of their ministry, in verse 9, John sees a multitude of Gentiles standing in the righteousness of Christ and thanking God for their salvation. It's interesting, John doesn't recognize this group of people, so they can't be the church. Verse 14 identifies them as the folks who were saved during the Great Tribulation. These saints, though, will endure tough times. Hunger, thirst, persecution will be part of their discipleship. And yet we're told that in the end, the Lamb will be their shepherd. What a wonderful thought. Hey, those saved during the Great Tribulation spend seven years enduring pain and persecution. Those saved before the Tribulation spend those same seven years enjoying peace and pleasure in the presence of God. Why be a glutton for punishment? Why not give your life to Jesus today? In Revelation chapter 8, Jesus opens the seventh seal. And a half hour of silence in heaven takes place. A half hour of silence. A hush before the crush, you might say. It's broken by the shrill blast of seven trumpet judgments. Verse 4 indicates that the trumpets are the results of the prayers of the saints. God hears us when we cry for justice on this earth. And one day he will answer those cries. With the first trumpet, a third of the earth is torched. With the second trumpet, a third of the ocean is poisoned. With the third trumpet, a third of the fresh water supply becomes contaminated. And with the fourth trumpet, the earth's exposure to the sun is somehow reduced by a third. The earth is ravaged. What on earth has happened to the planet earth? Is John describing a nuclear debacle? Perhaps a natural disaster, or is he describing both? Notice again in verse 8 of chapter 8, he says, Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. I brought with me tonight a National Geographic special. It's called Asteroids, Deadly Impact. Just to show you that this isn't my idea. This is being talked about in scientific circles today. You've seen a couple of video clips where it's gotten into popular movies, but this is certainly being discussed in NASA circles and in circles of astronomers. This is a very popular theory today. The whole idea that a cosmic projectile may and could and probably will impact the earth in its future. It's interesting, as I watched that documentary, I was amazed that the scriptwriter sounded so much like John. One place in the movie, he referred to these earth-crossing asteroids as mountains tumbling through the space, end quote. Isn't that interesting? When John here says it was something like a great mountain burning with fire. It's interesting, on March the 22nd, 1989, an asteroid came within six hours of striking Earth. On May the 14th, 1996, another asteroid missed us by a mere 280,000 miles, which astronomically speaking is a near miss. The moon is about 240,000 miles, so it wasn't very much further from us than the moon. It's as if God is firing warning shots across the bow of the earth in order to encourage us to repent. 
It's interesting that a comet's tail is composed of hydrogen and carbon, and thus as it enters the Earth's atmosphere, it ignites with the oxygen and it catches on fire. It would look like John's description, a great mountain burning with fire. On impact, it would torch the Earth and taint the waters and make them turn the color of blood. It might even tilt the Earth's axis further from the sun, diminishing our solar exposure, as he mentions in this uh, fourth trumpet. Hey, it all could occur just as Revelation chapter 8 describes. In fact, it all will occur just as Revelation 8 describes. Another consideration is brought up in verse 11. John writes, A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and the name of the star is Wormwood. Now, if you were reading out of a Ukrainian version of the Bible, did you know that the word translated wormwood or bitterness is the word Chernobyl? Which, of course, is the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster. Nuclear detonations could also be involved in some of these trumpet judgments. Whatever the cause, the effects are devastating. The earth becomes a tottering inferno. In chapter 4, angels cried out in heaven, Holy, holy, holy. Now in chapter 8, verse 13, an angel on earth flies through the sky shouting, Woe, woe, woe. Three more trumpets are about to sound. God is saying to this wicked world, Hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. It gets worse. In chapter 9, verse 1, another star falls from heaven. But this star is not an object, it's a person. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that stars are also symbolic of angels. And this fallen star, with the key to the bottomless pit, is none other than Satan himself. And with the fifth trumpet, Satan unleashes a Pandora's box of evil on this wicked world. Hellish locusts appear. And John indicates that these are not normal locusts. The locust insect feeds on vegetation. Notice these locusts lay off the greens and feed on men. These are demons. Formerly chained in hell, but now let loose on earth. It's possible these were the demons that raped and pillaged before the flood. They've spent three millenniums locked up in heaven's mac- in hell's maximum security, and now they're itching to get out and wreak havoc. We're told they sting like scorpions. And they appear as hairy locusts with heads like horses and faces like men. They resemble the gargoyles that were painted by the Renaissance artists. They even have a king. His name is Apollyon, which means destroyer. Verse 6 tells us that people want to die to escape these demons. They even attempt suicide. But Jack Kovorkian's phone number is dead. They can't get through. Death takes a vacation. We're told here, given the impression that people will blow their brains out and yet their bodies will refuse to die. There's no escaping these judgments and these punishments. The only ones protected, we're told, are the 144,000 Jews for Jesus. The sixth trumpet releases more misery. Four demons of death are responsible for killing another third of the world's population. That's another, by this point, one and a half billion people. They take control, we're told, of a vast army, 200 million troops, possibly the army of the east that marches to Armageddon in chapter 16. 
In verses 17 through 19, the horses they ride sound amazingly like first century descriptions of 20th century military hardware. It's interesting when you read that part. It says, out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Sounds almost like a tank. By this point, you would think the world would be ready to repent. Men would be crying out for God's deliverance. But rebellious man is determined to defy the Lord. He'd better watch out because the Lord is determined to break his stubborn neck. In Revelation, the judgments that come upon this Christ-rejecting world take the form of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And in chapter 10, verse 3, he adds seven thunders. It's interesting, John is just about to write down the seven thunders when he's told to stop. And so we don't know what the seven thunders are. Apparently he wants us to know there are seven thunders, but he doesn't want us to know what they are. They remain a mystery. In chapter 10, verse 1, John sees a mighty angel who straddles the sea and the land. And he has a little book opened in his hand. I believe this angel is none other than Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the angel's appearance here in chapter 10 is similar to John's vision of Jesus. Back in chapter 1, the scroll is possibly the title deed of the earth that we saw back in chapter 5. There it was sealed up. Now that the seals have been broken, it is now an open book he's holding in his hand. Remember, Jesus owns the earth. He has the papers to prove it. He holds the book in his hand. The deed is open. The seals have been snapped. The judgments of God have been executed. And the conflict with Satan is about to reach a climax. The kingdom of God has almost come by this point. And that's why John is told to eat the scroll. And as he first chews on the implications of Messiah's takeover, it excites him. It's a sweet taste in his mouth. Sin is defeated. Christ is on the throne. The thought of God's long-awaited judgment leaves a sweet taste in his mouth. But as he digests the implications, as he chews on the plight of men who are lost without Christ, to think of their souls missing out on the rapture, burning in hell, gives John a touch of heartburn. It does. The taste that begins as sweet ends up becoming bitter. I call this the revelation realization. And I hope it happens to us tonight. When you discover the reality of Bible prophecy, when you realize that Jesus is coming to earth very soon, you get excited. It's sweet, but then it hits you. Judgment is coming on the people I love, the people you love. People are going to be left behind to go through these tortures and torments. The sweetness turns to heartburn. Our hearts burn to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him. Revelation 11 assumes that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt in the last days. And that's why it's exciting to realize that preparations for its construction are underway today. In fact, when we go to Jerusalem, we always visit the Temple Institute, where implements for the third temple have already been built and are on display there. You see, the Jews are determined to rebuild their temple. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And that's why here in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 11, when John is told to measure the temple's dimensions, of course, that assumes that a temple will be there to be measured. Notice he says, though, But leave out the outer court, for it has been given to the Gentiles. 
It's interesting. The latest archaeological research suggests that the Jewish temple sat north of the mosque that now occupies the mount. And it's possible that the Jews will not have to remove the Muslim mosque to rebuild their temple, as most people assume. Rather, they can build their temple to the north of the mosque. That then would mean that the mosque would be in the outer court. And here John is told, measure the temple, but leave out the outer court. Why? Because it's been given to the Gentiles. Perhaps some agreement will be reached for the Jews to build their temple and that mosque to coexist on the same mount. Revelation 11 also highlights God's two invincible witnesses, the dynamic duo. They work miracles, they preach the gospel. Verse 6 tells us, these have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls and they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Because they perform some of the same miracles in their ministry, some people have identified these two witnesses as Elijah and Moses. That's just speculation. I think you could also make a case for Elijah and Enoch. When the work of these two witnesses is finished, the Antichrist is given power to kill them. And verse 8 says that their corpses will lie in the streets of Jerusalem and all the world will see it. Evidently, for three and a half days, CNN will be live on the scene there in Jerusalem. And the whole world will witness the slaughter. People, were told, even exchange gifts and revel in a satanic celebration because of the death of these two witnesses. But then suddenly, the Lord is going to crash the party. Verse 11 says that God will raise these two witnesses from the dead, and they will ascend into heaven. And as they go up, another judgment will come down, a great earthquake, whose epicenter is Jerusalem, will kill 7,000 men. As a result, men all over the world become afraid. When the seventh trumpet blows, the war on earth will soon be over. The throne of man is crumbling, and the throne of God is now visible in the heavens. By this point, only a few final judgments lay between a sin-scarred earth and its final redemption. In chapter 11, verse 15, voices from heaven sing, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. What a day that will be. How we long for that to happen. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, the woman is Israel. In verse 3, the dragon is Satan. In verse 4, the stars are angels. And in verse 5, the male child, birthed by the woman or Israel, is none other than Jesus Christ. Notice the male child will rule all nations with a rod of iron and was caught up to God and to his throne. That can't be anybody but Jesus. These are the players in Revelation chapter 12. And for the rest of the chapter, John plays the role of a war correspondent as he reports from the final throes in an age-old battle between God and Satan. It's interesting. Human beings stay pregnant for nine months. Some of you ladies thought it was much, much longer, but it really was just nine months. Just be glad you're not a rhinoceros. Rhinos are pregnant for 15 months, and definitely be glad you're not an elephant. Elephants stay pregnant for a whopping 21 months. But understand, Israel 
was pregnant with the promise of the Messiah for 4,000 years. The Savior of the world was born through the woman or through Israel. And yet throughout her history, from Pharaoh's attempt on Moses' life to Herod's slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem, at every turn, Satan has tried to cut off the lineage of the Messiah. Of course, his attempts have always fallen short. Jesus was born. Salvation was accomplished. But I believe Satan has a special hatred for the Jews. In fact, according to chapter 12, verse 7, midway through the great tribulation, war erupts in heaven. Two heavyweights go at it. Michael, the archangel, and his allies slug it out with Satan and his demons. I'm sure that battle will make Star Wars look like a dart throw. In the end... Satan gets bounced from heaven, and he realizes the end of his reign of terror is at hand. As John says it in verse 12, he knows he has a short time. So what does he do? Is it any surprise that he immediately turns and attacks the woman? You see, by this point, Israel has fled into the wilderness where God has provided for her and protected her for three and a half years. Isaiah 16 identifies where God will hide Israel during this time. The rock city of Petra becomes her hideout. Near the end of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will send his army like a flood, using John's idioms, to annihilate the Jews. And that's when this earthquake erupts and it intercepts this genocide squad that Antichrist sends and Israel is saved once more. Again, Satan gets defeated. He was defeated in heaven and now he gets routed on the earth. Double trouble appears in Revelation chapter 13. The Great Tribulation features a deadly demonic duo with occult powers. Satan empowers the Beastie Boys. The first beast, John sees, is the Antichrist. He's a political leader who rules the world. His ten horns represent a ten-nation confederacy that catapult him to power. Verse 3 mentions that he recovers from a deadly head wound. People see it as a miracle, and it propels him to superstar status. The whole world worships this man. You know, several years ago, an organizer of the European community, a man by the name of Henry Speck, he made a comment that reflected what is today the mood all across Europe. He said, we don't want another committee. We want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people. Send us a man, whether he be God or a devil, send him. You see, the world is primed today for a leader who has answers to our modern complexities. This beast is a man whose heart belongs to Satan and his successes go to his head. Verse 5 says that his big mouth is full of blasphemy. Verse 6 tells us that he'll rule for 42 months or three and a half years. And verse 7 says he makes war with and overcomes the Jews. God, though, will get revenge Verse 10 says the saints need faith and patience. Now, the second beast in Revelation 13 is the false prophet. He's a religious leader who gives ecclesiastical sanction and support to the ambitions of the Antichrist. The first beast is a political leader, whereas the second beast is a religious leader. 
The false prophet leads an apostate church and he appears as a man of God. He constructs, though, an image and he uses this image to blackmail the world into worshiping the Antichrist. You see, the Beastie Boys, they concoct this fiendish scheme. A one-world government creates a one-world economy. And a universal number or code is required to do business under their system. But to get that mark, you have to worship the beast. And the infamous number is 666. It's interesting. In the Great Tribulation, people will sell their soul to buy a loaf of bread Today, barcodes and scanners are setting the stage for this scriptural scenario. If you miss the rapture, I hope none of you will, but if there is somebody here tonight who misses the rapture and they try to tattoo a mark or implant a chip in your right hand or in your forehead, by all means, just say no. Even if it costs you your life, because we're told here that those who take it are those who go to hell. Revelation 13 spotlights the bad boys of the Great Tribulation, while Revelation chapter 14 highlights the good guys. John again sees the Lamb and the 144,000 witnesses. But the 144,000 are not God's only witnesses during the Great Tribulation. We're told three angels with loud voices fly around the earth, preaching the gospel, declaring destruction, and warning the world not to take this mark of the beast. The third angel describes the eternal plight of those who do. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's why I say, if you're around at that time, don't take the mark. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable. He told the parable about a man who sowed wheat in a field. But at night, his enemy came and sabotaged his crop by sowing weeds Among the wheat. Do you remember that parable? But rather than pull up the weeds, Jesus said, let them grow together. He was afraid that you might accidentally uproot the wheat along with the weeds. And so he said, wait until harvest time before the separation of the weeds and wheats occur. But now here in Revelation 14, verse 14, the harvest time has come. Now it's time to weed the world, you might say. And Jesus appears with sickle in hand. The Lord is going to gather the righteous and the angel is going to cast the wicked into the wine press of God's wrath. Revelation 15 introduces the final seven plagues. Seven bowls are brimming with divine wrath. These are the most intense of all God's judgments. John sees the heavenly temple. He sees heaven filled with smoke and he knows the earth is about to get smoked. In Revelation 16, these seven bowls of divine displeasure are emptied out on the earth. Understand, these are not bowl games. God is serious about judging sin when it comes to these final seven bowls. The first plague is a saucer full of infection and inflammation. People on earth worship the beast with one hand and scratch their running sores with their other. It's possible that this foul and loathsome sore is the result of some kind of exposure to nuclear radiation. John Hersey wrote a book called Hiroshima, and in his book he describes the victims of nuclear radioactivity. He says, faces were wholly burned, eye sockets were hollow, fluid from melted eyes ran down cheeks, 
Mouths were swollen, pus-covered wounds. This is the type of plague that the first bowl brings. The second bowl pollutes the ocean. The third bowl, 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 you know, bowl, get it out. The third saucer. (laughs) It contaminates the drinking water. Jesus has to return soon if the drinking water's been contaminated or man can't survive. This comes very close to the end. You know, ozone depletion is a problem today, but in the Great Tribulation it becomes a plague, not just a problem. For the fourth bowl empowers the sun to singe the earth's sinners. After the fifth bowl is spilled, the wicked sit in darkness, bleeding and blistered. You'd think that by now, the misery that they've experienced would hammer home the message to repent. But rather than cry out for mercy, notice what happens. The wicked shout blasphemies at God. The world is so deceived that men believe that God is their enemy and Satan is their friend. When the sixth bowl is poured out, the Euphrates River dries up. What was once a waterway now becomes a highway. And the army of the east comes out of the Orient and its troops march their way to Megiddo through this dried up riverbed. In verse 13, frog-like demons draw the armies of the world to the mountain of Megiddo. The final battle is about to be staged. The wicked are about to croak. Just see if you got that. The seventh bowl ravages the earth. Verse 18 mentions an unprecedented earthquake. Mountains are leveled. Islands are erased. In verse 21, the wicked world gets pelted with 100-pound hailstones. Hey, recall in the Old Testament the penalty for blasphemy? You remember what it was? It was stoning. Here, God is the one who decides to stone a blasphemous world with 100-pound hailstones. You know, they say that in a nuclear blast, the moisture gets compressed, and then it's shot into the upper layers of the stratosphere where it's 50, 60 degrees below zero. And frozen condensation falls back to earth in the form of chunks of ice that weigh as much as 200 pounds. And a lot of the early nuclear detonations back in the 50s, they couldn't understand what it was that was falling from the sky, putting these big, huge dents in, in all of the armor and all around, and they discovered that it was ice chunks falling. That's the result of a nuclear detonation. And here these hailstones are falling from the sky. It could be produced by some kind of nuclear explosion. May West was one of Hollywood's naughty girls. It was said that she climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. Here's a few quotes from May. I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. Marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution yet. I only like two kinds of men, foreign and domestic. And finally, she said, I've been in more laps than a napkin. May West was a woman who became a star by being a slut. And in Revelation chapter 17, we find the May West of the Bible, a biblical bad girl, a spiritual slut, a decadent, immoral, unfaithful woman, 
In verse 5, she receives the very unflattering name, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The whore of Babylon is the false religious system the Antichrist uses to gain ecclesiastical sanction for his rise to power. In the Great Tribulation, this naughty girl will be the spiritual system that deceives the world into worshiping Satan. In the words of Mae West, the whore of Babylon will say to the world, Come up and see me sometime. And sadly, the world will accept her invitation. The harlot of Babylon will include the institutional church once the true church has been raptured. It will incorporate, in addition though, elements of the occult and astrology and humanism and paganism, as well as all the world's religions. It will all come together in one eclectic doctrine, one universal religion. Its only creed will be, believe in anything but Jesus. It will be tolerant of all ideas, but the one true biblical Christianity. Popularity of this religion, sadly, is already on the rise. This Babylonian belief system has been around since Nimrod. When the Persians conquered Babylon, its priests fled to Asia and then later to Rome. In fact, today the Roman Catholic Church has incorporated many of its pagan practices into its worship. Sadly, evangelical churches today are also incorporating and actually trying to sanctify sorcery. Things like positive confession and visualization. Things like this, any attempt to try to manipulate reality through psychic gymnastics, these are things that are forbidden by God. These are things that are pagan practices, not Christian. Today it's called the new age. But trust me, God calls it the old lie. In chapter 17, verse 8, John sees a beast that was and is not and yet is. This is the revived Roman Empire. She rises in the last days in the form of a ten-nation confederacy headquartered in the capital city of Rome. Verse 9 further identifies this beast with seven mountains. And of course, Rome is known even to this day as the city set on seven hills. It's interesting that today, for the first time since 400 A.D., the old Roman Empire has once again come together. They've been united once again. It's been reassembled in the form of a united Europe. The European community even has its own common currency today, the euro dollar. And guess what the new Europe uses as a symbol of their union? I'll never forget a December 1991 Time magazine story that talked about the European community and the unification of Europe. And it contained a symbol in the story. It was actually a picture of it, of this European unity. And guess what it was? It was a woman riding on a beast. It was as if Time magazine had taken that imagery and lifted it right out of John chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 17. John says that the harlot will come to power riding on a beast. The harlot will come to power on the back of this revived Rome. But here's the lesson she learns. Go to bed with the devil and you'll never wake up. That's what happens to this harlot. 
For the political leader, the Antichrist, uses this false religion to come to power. But afterwards, he turns on the harlot. Verse 16 says she becomes desolate and naked. The Antichrist requires the world to worship him. And in the end, he becomes jealous of any type of religion, even false religion. He wants everyone to worship him. There are actually two Babylons talked about in Revelation. In chapter 17, the religious system, which helps give rise to the Antichrist, is called Babylon, after its ancient paganism. In chapter 18, the world's commercial center, which is under the Antichrist's control, goes by the same name, Babylon. Verse 3 tells us in chapter 18 that the Antichrist will secure the world's allegiance by making her subjects rich. In other words, in the end, the whole world is going to sell out principle for profit. People are going to compromise spiritually to gain financially. Can you imagine that happening? I think we all can. You know, still today, Babylon trades in the souls of men. Madison Avenue is after your soul. Guys, don't be had by the ads. God, not gold, is the only thing that will satisfy your soul. And in the end, Babylon the barterer goes belly up. We're told in 60 minutes, in one hour, Babylon the great will bite the dust. God mixes her a double shot of righteous wrath at the bar of divine judge justice. Verse 17 says, in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Did you hear that? In one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Don't be deceived, guys. Materialism will never satisfy. In the end, all of the world's riches will go up in smoke in less than one hour. Babylon goes bust. The world system will go bankrupt. Verse 10 tells us her mourners see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. This is why some Bible teachers believe that Babylon gets nuked. The observers have to stand at a distance for fear of the fallout. Verse 24 tells us that Babylon was guilty of the blood of prophets and saints. The Antichrist will manipulate the world's worship by taking control of their ability to buy and sell. And for the sake of a dollar, Babylon will go along with the scheme. Revelation 18 reveals that the destruction of Babylon causes the inhabitants of the earth to mourn, but at the same time, it causes the citizens of heaven to rejoice. And in chapter 19, verse 1, heaven shouts, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of her servants. And in verse 3, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever. Chapter 19 ends with a battle scene. But it begins with a bridal suite. Revelation 6 through 19 give us a description of what happens on earth during the great tribulation. But in chapter 19 verse 7, we find what happens in heaven during this same time. We're told for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Hey, if you know Jesus, 
If you're walking with Him, when the rapture takes place, you're going to get caught up. You will escape these judgments and you'll spend these seven years with the Lord at the marriage supper, enjoying our fellowship with Him, consummating our wedding vows, celebrating there in heaven with Him. I would much rather be there at the marriage feast than here on earth in great tribulation. You remember, at the Last Supper, Jesus made reference to the marriage supper. He toasted his bride, the church. And he told his disciples that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drank it with them in his kingdom. Now that day has come. Jesus is in heaven with his bride. They're celebrating a union that will last for all eternity. Revelation 19 begins with a glorious scene. But when this marriage feast is over, a feast of flesh is served up on the earth. For understand, the Prince of Peace is no pacifist. And Revelation 19, he and his bride go to war. And chapter 19 describes the cataclysmic conclusion of the battle between God and Satan. The war winds up at the grand finale in the valley of Armageddon. Antichrist and his allies appear to be a formidable force. They're stretched stretched out across the floor of the theater until suddenly heaven opens and God's warrior appears riding on a white horse. It's been a long time since this wicked world has seen the Lamb. What a surprise it will be for them to hear Him roar like a lion. You see, He came the first time to save, but He comes back here in chapter 19 the second time to slaughter. And there is no donkey ride this time. Verse 11 has Him mounted on a white steed. He's faithful and true. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On His head sits many crowns. His robe is dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And according to verse 15, He comes to strike the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. He's bringing to earth the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And in verse 16, we have the climax of John's description. He says of Jesus, He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. The battle to end all battles, the battle of Armageddon is not such a big deal after all. In verse 17, an angel calls for the scavengers to come and feast on the corpses of the Antichrist's army. The flesh of kings and captains become food for the vultures. Jesus will win. He will destroy Satan and the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist, the false prophet, are then captured and they're tossed into the lake of fire. The war between God and Satan is finally over. Blood has been shed. Lives have been lost. The earth is in ruins and now in need of restoration. But you see, this is what it took. This is what had to happen. Jesus not only owns the earth... But by this point, he now holds possession of it. This is what had to happen for him to gain possession. It belonged to him, but people wouldn't let him have what belonged to him. And so these judgments had to occur. But now that he possesses it as well as owns it, now he can begin to restore the damage. 
Now he can begin to redeem what's been in ruin. And chapter 19 closes with planet Earth now under new management. And beginning in chapter 20, we begin to see how Jesus restores the planet and how in the end he brings in even a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Of course, we're on a roll. We might as well just go ahead and... No. Too much in these last three chapters we want to talk about. Well, now you're all experts on Revelation chapters 6 through 19, aren't you? You know everything there is to know now about those chapters, right? You got it all down. You've, you nailed it down. You got it together tonight. Hey, some of you probably have a few questions. And so I'm just going to meet right down here. With a, we'll just fill in these first few rows. If you have some questions, if you'd like to discuss this further, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, join me right after the Bible study, and we'll go over some more of this stuff if you'd like and talk more about uh, what we've studied tonight. I've had fun doing this this week, and I hope you've enjoyed the Bible study tonight. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for these predictions, Lord, of the end times. And Lord, we are amazed at how we see things coming together in our day. This move today to rebuild the temple. There's been no temple for 2,000 years. And yet there's a strong move to rebuild it today. The European community and the Unification we see occurring there. First time since 400 A.D. We see these things happening in our day. Israel has become a nation. We we see all kinds of things being fulfilled before our eyes. And Lord, we know that you're coming soon and how sweet that is. But Lord, we also know tonight that after you're coming, after we're taken from this earth, incredible, catastrophic judgments are going to come upon this wicked world. You are going to clean house. And Lord, there's people we love who may be left behind. Help us. Help us to take that bitter taste and translate it into a new passion and zeal to tell others about you. We thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.